Hi friends, Fred Harrell here. Thanks for tuning in to the weekly City Church Sermon Podcast. Just a note that as we continue to shelter in place here in San Francisco, we will be bringing you our Sunday Sermon audio recording via Skype over a Facebook Live broadcast. So if the audio quality seems like a little lower than normal, then now you know what's happening. We just wanted you to know. You can join us on Facebook Live each Sunday at 10 a.m. Thanks for listening and subscribing to our podcast. The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now during those days, when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The word of the Lord. My friends, today we have such a great special speaker with us today, um, preaching Julie Rogers. Julie Rogers is a writer, speaker, and advocate for LGBTQ people in Christian communities. Julie is a sort of underground priest, as she calls herself, ministering to people who have been excluded by their faith communities for a variety of reasons. She has an enormous heart, and her every word is directed toward making sure that people from all backgrounds know that God loves them. She's also an alum of our Newbigin House of Study Fellowship and serves now and has for a number of years as a teaching fellow with us. One other project that Julie has been involved with is a film yet to be fully released, but I noticed has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, And that film is called Pray Away. Pray Away follows the journey of a group of LGBTQ Christians who claim to have changed from gay to straight and collectively created, controversially led, and then an unexpectedly disavowed conversion therapy or what's called the Pray the Gay Away movement. One part redemption story, one part anti-hero character study, and one part expose of the ex-gay world of yesterday and today. The film features the stories of those who were part of this movement in the painful aftermath of this in their lives today. Pray Away was an official selection at the 2020 Tribeca Film Festival, the 2020 Hot Docs International Film Festival, and the 2020 Florida Film Festival. Side note, some of the film was actually shot at City Church San Francisco, and Julie preached there a few years ago. So check out the trailer that we're going to play right now. And then after the trailer, we'll go right into Julie coming to us live from Washington, D.C., And so welcome, Julie, with your various expressions in the chat, our way of applauding uh, in COVID-19. And so here's the trailer and then Julie. My whole entire life was structured around not being gay.
There's a high population of youth who are at Living Hope. It was at least 50 people that were cycling through. We weren't allowed to have outside contact with each other, so we weren't allowed to be friends on Facebook or to know each other's last names. The reason that we couldn't share any identifying information was because they were worried we would all meet up and have sex with each other. We were only allowed to talk when we were like supervised. Ricky would say a big part of it's gonna be like your spiritual walk, spending time reading the Bible and praying and um, giving up masturbation. <laughs> masturbation was a big deal. Giving up masturbation, definitely giving up porn. It was decided between my mom and Ricky that I was gonna quit softball so I wouldn't become gay and I had to go to a Christian college so I wouldn't become a lesbian. If you were to say like, well, what does Julie need to do to become straight? It was a lot. Good morning, City Church. Uh, it is such a joy to be with you all this morning on Pride Sunday. I just still can't believe that I am a super lesbian, a uh, little like underground priest preaching at a, an actual church uh, on a Sunday morning. I just, uh, there were decades when I didn't think that that day could ever come. And um, I just want to acknowledge that, that because Christianity and, and because the church was a part of so much of the suffering, of causing so much of the suffering uh, that, that the queer communities experienced, throughout uh, our whole history, um, the profound power uh, that you all have, that we all have as the church to bring about healing. And so days like this, moments like that, uh, like this, or, or when we see that really happening. And uh, I just wanna give like my, my heartfelt thanks uh, to, to those of you in leadership and all the queer people in the community who are bravely showing up and continuing to um, enter into a space that uh, told you for so long you won't want you weren't wanted. Um, and I just want to say that uh, you are a role model by showing up for for people who who haven't yet uh, felt that freedom and and found uh, that that sense of of courage and confidence or maybe the community to be able to do that themselves, uh, but feel a little more hopeful about their own futures just by seeing you there. So thank you to all, all my people and all my family for um, continuing to just show up and put your bodies um, out there when, you, when you've experienced so much trauma and doing so in the past. I know it comes at a cost and I'm so thankful for you. So in the last few years, um, we've seen injustices that have been at work for hundreds of years come to the forefront of our public conversations. Um, you know, people, people have become aware of the suffering uh, of queer people throughout our history, of the, the violence white people have inflicted against black folks. Um, we, we, we've heard more about the rampant sexual assault women uh, experienced um, over the decades. We, we heard more about that through the Me Too movement. And, and as those injustices with a very long history ha have come to the forefront of our conversations, many people, uh, many of us, are, are earnestly wanting to know, wh what can we do? Uh, straight folks are, are, are reaching out to queer friends or queer people on social media, wanting to know what they can do uh, to, to help make this world a safer place. White people 
are, are asking black folks, are, are starting to read books, wanting to know like, how can we be better? Um, you see men out there like, what, am I not allowed to ask girls on dates anymore? And we're like, no, that that's not what we said. Like, okay, <laughs> but, but as we begin to ask the question, how do we make amends? Um, I think there are some important steps that you've likely already heard, uh, but are, are worth repeating that that we need to be listening to the stories of people who have been oppressed uh, and believe them. We need to lament. We need to grieve. We need to, to acknowledge the pain and the suffering to say that it matters, that people matter. But today's scripture passages challenge us to dig a little bit deeper. And I'm excited to join you in thinking through practical ways that this posture might help help us all love our neighbors a little bit better. What we see in this passage today, in this story today, is that the church is exploding. Uh, it's gone, it's the book of Acts, right? It's gone from a small group of people who were friends of Jesus, uh, who, who were like right there with him in the thick of things, to like tens of thousands of people um, and, and we know from Acts 2 that they're trying to share all things in common and look out for both the spiritual and material needs of the people. So they had to have been kind of like flying by the seat of their pants, like trying to stay on top of this rapidly expanding community and, and naturally getting a lot of things wrong because they're human beings and we tend to do that. Um, at the same time, they've got people from all kinds of backgrounds joining the community. And, and as we all know, diversity creates opportunities for growth and creativity, uh, but it also raises questions often about power. Who has it and how do they use it? And in this particular story, we see the Hellenistic Jews come to the apostle, apostles to let them know their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food. So, so the apostles are they're, they're Hebraic Jews who were like n the native Jewish population, um, and the Hellenistic Jews absorbed more of the Greek culture. Uh, there, there was some suspicion between the groups, as often happens, and the Hebraic Jews felt a little bit of a sense of superiority over the Hellenistic Jews, and and everybody just kind of felt that it was a it was part of of, of different communities coming together and trying to figure out how do we do this, how do we how do we be the church. Uh, in, in this new moment. It's not unreasonable to imagine cultural tensions might have been at play uh, behind the oversight of food distribution. So I imagine the, the Hellenists had to have been like, yo, it doesn't seem coincidental that you just happened to overlook our people while your widows are all looking like very well fed, right? So the Hebrews huddle, the apostles huddle, and they're like, okay, these guys are not wrong and we need to rectify the situation. And the apostles decide they'll run the ministry and they tell the Hellenistic Jews, uh, the people with less power in this situation, to pick seven people who will oversee the tables. Now, when I read that, I was like, okay, cool. The Hellenists will like pick seven folks who are gonna like serve in the soup kitchen. Okay. Then I dug a little further into the text and my mind was completely blown. I learned that overseeing the tables is not simply about the distribution of food. It's about who oversees all of the finances. So this is not picking the people who will work the line in the weekly soup kitchen. This is the apostles saying you oversee the budget. This is like next level reparations. Okay. So to recap, 
the people in this community with power chose to hand over their power and money to those with less power in order to make things right and move toward a more just and equitable community. Here's a list of things the apostles did not do. They did not say, okay, you pick one person to join our team of seven decision makers so y'all can have a voice. They did not say, hey, you know, we've let y'all join us. Community is hard. It's going to take time for us to work out all the kinks. They did not say, whoa, 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 why are y'all so angry? Have you thought about maybe making your case in a calmer manner um, and considering unity in this situation? No, they, they said, you know what? You're right. We messed this up. You guys should actually run things around here and, and we'll go focus on, on prayer and worship. I think this is an incredible, powerful model, uh, incredibly powerful model for those of us in progressive spaces, uh, especially those of us in largely white progressive communities. Because we might be raising our voices more to show support for, for black and brown or queer people, but I think we get tripped up when it comes to giving up or, or sharing our power. So I want to take a few minutes this morning to imagine how we might be able to identify areas where we have power and influence and use it in ways that, that move beyond statements and posters to lasting structural changes. Before we get into that, though, uh, I want us to move from the theoretical to the real world of flesh and blood. Uh, sometimes I think we can get into debating like theology or policy, and it's almost like it's for sport. But, but these, these aren't ideas we're talking about. Um, and so if you're out there like, okay, okay, intersectionality, I know, I wanna remind you that this is, this is not about being politically correct or, or woke. Uh, this is about human beings and how we can alleviate suffering for real people in the here and now. And to ground us in that, I wanna read a quote from Ta-Nehisi Coates. It's a, it's a long quote, but it's incredibly powerful, so please stick with me. In his book, Between the World and Me, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates says this, uh, the whole book is a letter to his son, and, and he says this, he says, I have raised you to respect every human being as singular, and you must extend that same respect into the past. Slavery is not an indefinable mass of flesh. It is a particular, specific, enslaved woman whose mind is as active as your own, whose range of feeling is as vast as your own who prefers the way the light falls in one particular spot in the woods, who enjoys fishing where the water eddies in a nearby stream, who loves her mother in her own complicated way, thinks her sister talks too loud, has a favorite cousin, a favorite season, who excels at dressmaking and knows inside herself that she is as intelligent and capable as anyone. Slavery is the same woman born in a world that loudly proclaims its love of freedom and inscribes this love in its essential texts. A world in which these same professors hold this woman a slave, hold her mother a slave, her father a slave, her daughter a slave. And when this woman peers back into the generations, all she sees is the enslaved. She can hope for more. She can imagine some future for her grandchildren. But when she dies, the world, which is really the only world she can ever know, ends. For this woman, enslavement is not a parable. It is damnation. It is the never-ending night. And the length of that night is most of our history. 
Never forget that we were enslaved in this country longer than we have been free. Never forget that two for 250 years, black people were born into chains, whole generations followed by more generations who knew nothing but chains. That's why we're talking about how we can each play a part in creating more just and equitable systems. And that's why there's a sense of urgency because entire human lives have already been lost while we've been trying to figure it out. Um, if we take Jesus's call to love our neighbors seriously, we, we have to move past listening and learning and trying to figure it out. So I want to think this morning about a few ways that we might be able to do this practically. And I think it's going to look different for all of us. Uh, so my encouragement would be listen to some of these different examples and start thinking about uh, where you might um, have, have power and influence and, and what it might look like for you to, to creatively apply uh, the, the sort of um, process we saw the apostles go through um, in your own life. A few examples of where I've seen this done well. Uh, Ken Fong, who I think you all might know at City Church, I think he's preached there before, uh, was the lead pastor of a largely Asian American church called Evergreen Baptist Church in Los Angeles. And, and years ago, Ken started uh, becoming friends with uh, people in the LGBTQ community and inviting people to church and just saying like, hey, we want to be a safe place for you all. And so queer people started coming and bringing their friends. And, and there was like a sort of little group, queer group uh, created uh, that began to grow and expand. And as all these people started showing up, a lot of the straight folks in the congregation were like, hmm, huh, like, what's our policy about LGBT people? Like, this is different. And so they start meeting and they go to Ken and they say, hey, Ken, we just noticed there's like lots of gays. And we were just kind of wondering, like, what's our policy about LGBTQ people? And Ken was like, we don't have one. And they were like, huh, like, you know, we feel like we really need a policy to just kind of like lay out where the church is on, on the issue of, of sort of LGBTQ people. Uh, and he was like, okay, cool. I'll have the queer community write a policy uh, for the church, uh, you know, to, to sort of lay out what this looks like. And they were like, no, 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 that's not what we meant. And Ken was just like, hey, like we are not going to write a policy about this group of people. Uh, and so if we're going to have one, it's going to be them leading that charge, uh, not the straight folks, um, you know, with, with, with power in this community. And I thought that was just a really uh, profound answer to a question uh, that just in, in his answer um, brought to light the importance of, of not just including a group of people in, in the process of deciding what, uh, what, what inclusion looks like for them in the church, but like letting them run it and lead it and write the policies. Uh, I thought that was, I, th I just always thought that was so cool. Um, another example that I heard about in recent weeks, uh, as we've seen, you know, a movement for black lives uh, happening all over the world, uh, crying out for justice. Uh, I, I saw or I heard somewhere um, about the co-founder, a co-founder of Reddit, who's a white dude, uh, who gave up his board seat and told them to fill it with a black person. And I think like, gosh, you want to talk about how to bring about the kinds of changes we so desperately need. Those are the kinds of moves that are going to get us there. Because he wasn't like... Uh, you know, yeah, we should like get a black person on our board or maybe like a gay person. He was like, we need people like me. We need white dudes 
we need people with my kind of power and influence who have our voices have been heard for a really, really long time now. We need people like me to be out of here to make space for underrepresented people to take over. Whew. That's kind of awesome. Um, I think I think we see power structures beginning to change when uh, parents, wealthier parents, often white parents, decide to send their kids to the local public school in their district rather than driving across town to go to a school with more resources. And you know, then those parents have a stake in the community. You know, they're going to be showing up to the PTA meetings and neighborhood meetings and a demanding accountability for how schools are, are funded and resourced. And we'll begin to see more equality in education in that way. I want to acknowledge uh, that this can feel complicated and, and costly. Um, as a writer and speaker, I think a lot about what that looks like for me in my role. Um, so when I get a speaking request or I'm asked to, to write an op-ed, I think about whether my voice is the most important for that moment or if I should recommend someone else. And to be really honest, that can be kind of hard sometimes because I was excluded from so many systems for so long. And, and I, I know this really sucks, but I know there's only going to be a limited number of books about queer people, uh, a limited number uh, of queer speakers in a lineup. And I've heard things from publishers like, hey, we love your book idea, but we already published a book from a gay guy earlier this year, <laughs> earlier this quarter. And it's like, oh, wow, well, okay, there's lots of us. Like, maybe you could publish too, you know? And, and, and I just know there's gonna be a limited number uh, of queer people that are asked to write that op-ed about the latest gay news. <laughs> um, and I think, I think like, oh man, like, oh, I just got my foot in the door. Like, ah, it's, it can be kind of hard to think about like, you know, uh, about sort of recommending someone else, passing those opportunities on. But I think about words like these from Audre Lorde, uh, a queer black woman who wrote this poem in 1973. And she wrote this about her experience of, of white feminism, of, of movements, largely white, white movements working for women's equality. Her poem is called, Who Said It Was Simple? She says, there are so many roots to the tree of anger that sometimes the branches shatter before they bear. Sitting in netics, the women rally before they march, discussing the problematic girl as they hire to make them free. An almost white counterman passes a waiting brother to serve them first, and the ladies neither notice nor reject the slighter pleasures of their slavery. But I, who am bound by my mirror as well as my bed, see causes and color as well as sex, and sit here wondering which me will survive all these liberations. I don't want to be a part of a movement or live in a world where anyone has to ask which part of them will survive these liberations. Because you know what the flip side of that statement means? It means some parts of them die. If we are serious about Jesus' call to love our neighbors, then each and every one of us needs to take an inventory of the areas where we hold power and have influence and start to ask ourselves and our friends how we might be able to hold it a little more like the apostles did in our scripture passage today. Our order for the way they had that power. I cannot wait to see what happens. People begin to creative ways in your particular spaces. But I think it'll look a little more like the kingdom of heaven here on earth.